It is other. It is a different dirt than that over there that you've been walking on. But it's just dirt. What makes that dirt, that ground, so special? It's the presence of God. What makes that ground holy is because the holy God is there. That is why it is holy. This reminds us, of course, of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the midst of national turmoil, in the midst of hopelessness, politically, socially, in the life of the Israelites, Isaiah 6.1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. One seraph cries out to the other in this setting, stunning picture of the throne room of God, who we later find out is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But the throne room of God here is, is painted before us in Isaiah chapter 6. And one seraph calls out to the other, and the most natural thing to say in that setting is worship. Is complete worship of God. It's not a time for trivial talk. It's not a time for water cooler conversations. No, they are in the throne room of God, the Holy One. And so they shout out to each other the holiness of God that they are in the presence of. Again, holy holy, holy. They're basically saying other, 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 or set apart, set apart, set apart. There is nobody like God. There is nothing like our God, Christian. God even says of himself in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? Try and answer that question, friend. Who do you know that even comes close to God? What power, what entity, personal or national, do you know of that comes close to God? Who comes close to the greatness of God? Who has a love like our God? Who is patient 
like our God? Who is self-existent, as we saw last week? Who is gracious? Who is pure? Who is all-knowing? Who is wise? Who is truly good and, and true and jealous and wrathful or powerful or sovereign or merciful like our God? There is nobody like him. The answer to God's question, to whom you will, will you liken me? The answer is no one. He alone is holy, set apart, in a class all his own. Now back in Exodus, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God here brings up, he refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm their God. And of course, when he does that, it's just a shorthand of, of calling to remembrance his covenant to his people. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. One example of this covenant where he repeats it. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was God's promise to Israel for nation land, and blessing. His threefold promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis. He is making good on his promise. You see, what God is doing here when he is speaking to Moses is saying, I haven't forgotten my promise. I have not forgotten Maybe my people have forgotten. Maybe they thought I've forgotten. But I am still, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice that he is, present tense, their God. That means that they're alive. That means that they are with him. In the presence of God. God will always be your God, Christian. When you die, He's still your God. And you're still His people. Death has no stranglehold on us. It shouldn't. We ought not fear death. And again, that doesn't mean we walk into oncoming traffic. but we ought not fear death. That crippling kind of fear that we see take hold of whole societies, that we've seen take hold of whole societies this past year, that crippling kind of sheer terror of just getting sick, much less dying, we should not be crippled that way. We should not shudder at the thought of death. We ought to be careful, of course, but we ought not to fear 
death. Rather, we should fear God. Now, God is bringing into remembrance his promises and reminding us that he doesn't forget his promises. When he promises something to you, Christian, he will do it. It may not be your timeline, but he will do it. And notice the impulse behind his promise keeping. Verse 7 through 9. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. You see, God says that he sees. He cares. He says the same thing in verse 9. Behold, the cry of the, the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Notice he says, I, I hear the, their cry, and I have compassion on the cry of my people, and, and also the wickedness of evildoers does not escape my notice either. I am a just God, as much as I am a merciful God. God says here that he sees the affliction of his people. I love that. I have seen the affliction of my people. Not I have seen your affliction. Or I have seen the affliction of those people. But he says my people. Surely there are millions of people around the globe, even today, that are suffering. And God is truly aware. And he has compassion and he offers freedom from the suffering of sin in Christ. And he calls on the church to relieve suffering of those around us that are suffering. Yet there is another kind of awareness, you could say. For God's own people, God observes our suffering with a special care. He gives heed to their cry. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. Literally, when he gives heed to their cry, it is to listen with the intent of doing something about it. This is the same word that's used for God's people. And for us in the Old Testament who are commanded to hear God's word or listen to his commands. It's the same word. And surely when God tells us, listen to my word, listen to my commands, take heed to my law, he doesn't mean uh, just show up and, and just make your way through the sermon and just listen. That's not what he means. Certainly. No, he means to listen with the intent to obey. Listen with the full plan of doing something about what you hear. That's how we should approach the word of God. And it's amazing that that is how God hears our cries. He doesn't just listen to our prayers. 
and check off the box. Yeah, I, I heard them out. No, he doesn't just hear you out, Christian. He listens to you intently with every intention of doing something about it. So keep crying out to him. The opposite of this word, to take heed, to give heed to their cry, the opposite is to disregard. God does not disregard our cries for help, does he? He listens intently. He hears and he knows exactly what his people are going through. Verse 8 is, is amazing. He says, I have come down, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. God is telling Moses, your circumstance right now, the circumstance of my people, is not out of my control. It's not just that I hear you and I sympathize with you, or I have pity on you. No, it's I hear you, and I, and I have every intention to do something about it, and I can and I will do something about it. It's not out of my control. Your sufferings are not out of the control and the sovereignty of God. He gives us exactly what we go through. Nothing is out of his plan. Nothing catches him by surprise that you go through, Christian. But notice, he moves. He acts out of his compassion for his people. Verse 7 their, their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings. I'm compassionate. So I have come down to deliver them. Verse 8. So out of my compassion, therefore I have come down to do something about it. Amazing the way that God speaks here. He says, I must come down to deliver them. He must descend from the heavens, that is, from his high and lofty position over all of creation. He has to stoop to help us. Now, I don't know about you, but after a long day of work uh, and after a nice meal, uh, we'll clean up as a family and maybe do something. But once I sit down, right, on that couch, it seems like as soon as I, I, I make contact with that couch, a need arises. Can you do this real quick for me before you settle down? And it's just, it's like everything within me to humble myself, right, and to just, serve my family, right? That's what we do. We're servant leaders, men. So, you know, sometimes I have not the best attitude about it. I ask for repentance, of course, but all to say that this doesn't happen with God. 
You know, once, once a guy sits down on his throne, right, it's hard to get him back up off of it. It's because we're lazy and we're selfish. But God is not that way. No, he sits on his throne and it is no trouble for him to get up and to come down and help us. He has no issue there. He, in fact, he delights to do it. God says, he promises that he will deliver his people from their circumstance. Also, God's deliverance here that he promises is not minor. It's not a frugal kind of deliverance. Notice what, what he's, the words that he uses. Uh, a good, words like good and spacious and flowing and milk and honey. Those are nice words. Those are lavish words. See, God, when he delivers a person, he's not clipping coupons, you see. When he makes promises to you, Christian, he's not making safe bets or safe promises just in case he can't quite meet it. No. His promises are greater than you can imagine to you. His promises, his deliverance is good and lavish and rich. So that demands us, church, to trust God. Trust his word, not your sight. You can imagine these Israelites, or even Moses, would see a direct conflict to the present circumstance and to these lofty promises. There is a huge difference between where I, what I see and what God's promising. Is that where you are this morning? God has promised you freedom from sin, victory over sin, but what you're going through Seem, feels a lot different from victory over sin. God promises you harmony in your marriage, reconciliation, forgiveness in your relationships, but what you're going through feels a world different from those promises. God promises that he'll, he'll take care of you, provide for you, protect you, and that he won't give you anything that is too much for you to bear. But, but what you're going through feels a lot different than those promises. Doesn't it? If you're honest. If we're honest, what we're going through doesn't quite match up to the promises of God all the time. We begin to doubt. That's where faith comes in where we must trust God's word, trust his promises, trust what he says, not what you see. Yet in all this, all these promises, it's not really about you, is it? 
Verse 12, just to, just to highlight a couple things. Verse 12, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You, that is a plural you, all of you shall worship God at this mountain. So it's not just about, you know, I'm going to relieve your pain just because I feel sorry for you. No, I'm going to relieve and deliver you so that you will worship me. Same thing in verse 18. Jump down there. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has, sent, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's what this is about. This is, is about God's people worshiping their God. So when God promises, I will deliver you, I will help you. Sinner, when, when God promises, I will forgive you. I will be the bread of life to you. I'll satisfy you. It's not about you. It's so that you will experience those realities and then turn around and worship Him. You see, that's the goal of it all. Isaiah 63, 9 refers back to this passage where the, um, where the angel of the Lord, where, where God shows up to Moses and, and tells them that he sees what they're going through. Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all of their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved him. Now it says, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. It doesn't say, in all of their affliction, he observed or he saw. It says, in all of their affliction, he too was afflicted. You see, God identifies with us. We are his people. And when you suffer... When you are afflicted, Christian, he suffers. He is afflicted. He literally feels your pain. Now, this one who is speaking to Moses is none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. Look up just briefly, verse 2, Exodus 3, 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. This angel of the Lord who appeared to him is the same one in verse 6 who said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the same one who said, I have seen the affliction of my people. This is the same one who says, I have come down to deliver them. Who is this angel of God? Well, it seems from the, from the passage, it's God. Yet he's the angel of God. To be an angel of God is to be one who is sent from God, to be God's messenger. So it doesn't literally have to be an angel. It can be translated the messenger of God. But this was their title the, for, for, the, for the angels that God made. 
I believe this is this angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, where it says there in verse 2, that is a special title for a special person. And Scripture shows us that this is Jesus before he was Jesus. This is the Messiah before he fulfilled the role of Messiah. This is the pre-incarnate. So incarnate means, it comes from the Latin to, to be in flesh. So in, right, is en in Latin. To be in incarnate is, if you like carne asada, that means flesh tacos. That's literally, if, if, if we were in speaking Latin, we'd be calling it flesh tacos. But it's meat, right? So carne is flesh. So in flesh, Incar- to be incarnate is to be in flesh. So when we speak of the incarnation of Christ, we speak of Christ becoming man, becoming flesh. This here is pre-incarnate. So this is the same person, but before he was clothed in flesh, you see. This reality is, is supported by texts like John 1.18, where it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who, has, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has ever seen God, that is God the Father. But then he says, The only God who is at the Father's side who is the Son of God, that only God who is at the Father's side has made Him, the Father, known to us. And the context is by becoming flesh, by becoming man and dwelling among us. Literally, it it says, this only God who is at the Father's side, this one, He has made him known. Literally, he has exegeted him. He has exposed him. He has explained him. So if we take this verse, the verses like this, at just face value, then the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, revealed himself throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And every time he appears, he's giving us a sneak peek, a sneak preview about what he will do when he comes in flesh. Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord came to meet Hagar, Sarai's maid. And he comes to her to comfort her in her distress because she was being mistreated by Sarai. And even Hagar calls this angel of the Lord a God who sees. Doesn't that sound familiar to our passage? Genesis 18, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham at his tent, and he came to remind Abraham of the promises that he had already made to give assurance of the faithfulness of God to carry out his promise. Not only that, but he came to carry out judgment. The judgment of God upon wicked men at Sodom 
and Gomorrah. We see here characteristics of Christ. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord met Abraham on top of that mountain, remember? That mountain where he was about to sacrifice his own son, his only son. Is it any coincidence that the true only begotten son showed up there at that location, at that event? And the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham, promising a substitute and and thereby pointing forward to another son, another only begotten son, whose life would not be spared like Abraham's son's life was. Genesis 32. The angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob. We saw this at the beginning of this year. And he showed Jacob his weakness. And he taught Jacob, as he changed his name to Israel, to depend on God's power to fight for him. Isn't that what Christ does? He fights for us. Joshua 5 The angel of the Lord came to meet Joshua, and after telling Joshua to remove his sandals, sounds familiar? After telling Joshua to remove his sandals, he called himself the captain of the Lord's hosts, the leader of God's army. And he taught Joshua to trust him alone if he were to have victory over Jericho. In Judges 6, Gideon met the angel of the Lord, and he came The angel of the Lord came to promise peace to God's people. And this peace would come about through the the hand of Gideon from the evil Midianites. Judges 13. Last one. The angel of the Lord spoke to Samson's mother, Manoah. This was in the middle of a declining nation where it was full of sinful leaders and God's people were hopeless for deliverance, the angel of the Lord showed up to Manoah and he gave a word of hope. And he announced God's promise to raise up a man named Samson who would deliver God's people through his own death. Remember how Samson killed God's people's enemies? He had to die. Another preview of the work of the Messiah. So, this angel of the Lord is the one who shows up to Moses. Again, verse 7, I am the one who have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. Christian, this is your Savior. He sees, he cares, he sees and he hears and knows exactly what you are going through. And he says, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. Who was afflicted? The Son of God. Therefore, is it any wonder, is it any wonder that the incarnate Son of God We were talking about the pre-incarnate. Now the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. This same person is the same one who still identifies with the suffering of his people. Acts chapter 9, 
verses 1 through 5. Let's turn there. We're just going to have to finish this next time. Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 5 says, Now Saul, before he became Paul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound, that is in chains, to Jerusalem. So he he goes to the high priest and basically asks for this letter of recommendation or this, this letter of authorization to arrest anybody who says they're a Christian. Seems like he got it. Or he, excuse me, it seems like he would have gotten it had God not interrupted him. It says in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice, in verse 2, who are the ones that Saul was persecuting? It's the Christians, those belonging to the way. That's what it was called in the early times of the church. He was persecuting them. He was binding them in chains and arresting them and and overseeing the murder of them, the, the believers. But notice when Jesus shows up and interrupts this man in his persecution, notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these innocent people? No. He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, he identifies with you, Christian. As you go and evangelize, as you share the gospel with your friends, your family, your co-workers, as they reject you, and maybe even avoid you once you've tried to share the gospel with them, if they shun you out of their circle, if they joke about you when you're not around, if you get fired by your boss, if you get canceled on social media, They're not persecuting you. They're persecuting Christ. This is the Jesus 
This, is, this Jesus is the same person who in Exodus 3 identified with the sufferings of his people. And he sympathizes with us, church. He understands what you're going through. He understands that you're suffering. He knows. He knows it's difficult. In your struggle against sin. In your struggle to remain pure. In your struggle to be righteous in your thoughts. In your struggle to obey His word in the home. He knows it's hard. But you need to trust His promises, not what you see. You need to trust that when He says something in the Bible, He means it. God's promises to His people are always promises that are on a grand scale. It is that very reason why it's not up to us to fulfill these promises. Just as we close and in kind of a preview for next time, not next week because next week is Easter Sunday, but a preview to our next time in Exodus. In verse 10 and 11, just briefly. How is God going to get this done? He says, therefore, come now, I will send you, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses' response is, me? Why me? Why me? Why, why would God's promises be carried out in me? Who am I? Don't you know who I am? Who am I that I would go to Pharaoh and that I... Moses would bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. You got the wrong guy, God. Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh no, you got it. You're strong enough. No, he doesn't say that. He says, certainly I will be with you. Christian, when you begin to doubt God's promises, you need to not only remember His promises, but remember the God who made those promises. When you begin to doubt that you truly do have victory over sin and that you truly can change, you need to look to Christ, to the one who says, I who began a good work in you will be faithful. It's not up to you. This Moses felt completely inadequate. You might feel completely inadequate. That's exactly the right response. God's answer has nothing to do with Moses' abilities. Rather, he points to the fact that he, God, will see to it that they are delivered. Instead of pointing to Moses, God points to himself as the source of confidence. So it must be with us. Look to God and cry out to Him. God, you promised, you promised, you promised. Remind Him of His promises. 
and then trust and wait that if he made a promise, he'll make good on it. Even though you might not see it. Even though you might doubt that it can really happen through you and in you. Be confident that when God makes a promise, he will keep it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to your people, Lord, as, as we come face to face with our own doubts. Lord, we, we, we doubt that we can really change. We doubt that there can be any victory. We doubt that you can save that loved one. We doubt, Lord, that you can really provide for everything that we need. We doubt that if we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you, Lord, that we'll find the abundant life and that we won't be jealous of the world. We doubt that you care for us. We doubt that your word is true. We doubt that your word is relevant for what we're going through and struggling with today. All kinds of doubts, God. May you extinguish those, Lord, as we remember your word. And I pray for your people that they would be in your word and see those promises this week. And they would be reminded that it's not up to them. It's up to you. And yes, you will work through us, but it will be you working through us. So may we approach this week with all confidence, certain, confident in the promises and the ability of our God. May you grant that to your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.